This epistle is written to a church that was in rough waters. Written to a church that was being persecuted. Written to a church that was in trials. Written to a church that was facing many temptations. Like many of you in here this morning, facing trials and temptations and hardships, this text that we're going to read can help us hold on to the hope that we have in Christ alone. Many of you know this, that we've been in the Sola series. And as we've been in the series looking at why uh, Solo Scriptura, why Scripture alone, why grace alone, why faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Why these things? We've been outlining them each week. And so I want to choose a passage, but before I read this passage to you, I've got to be honest, when you cover something like Christ alone, it literally permeates every area of life. And when we talk about Christ and his work, we usually talk about Christ and his work in three different offices. We talk about Christ and his work as Christ uh, the King. We talk about Jesus Christ and his work as the prophet. And we talk about Jesus Christ and his work as the high priest or our priest. Today, what I want to do for you this morning is I want to localize what Jesus Christ does for us as our high priest. Jesus Christ does three things that only he can do that you desperately need. I want to tell you about them in a second. But if you would, and you have the ability to stand, would you stand with me for the reading of our text? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God shall stand forever by his grace and mercy. May it be preached for you. You could be seated. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge now that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And while the grass withers and the flower falls, your word will not fall. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Teach us, correct us, rebuke us, comfort us. Be near to us now, O Lord, as we look at your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen. I've asked thousands of people this one question. Don't answer out loud, but I would love to hear how you would answer this question. You think about this in your mind. Here's the question. If you could spend an afternoon with Jesus Christ, what would you talk about? If you could spend an afternoon with Jesus Christ, what would you ask him about? And as you can imagine, I've been given various responses to that question. 
I've been given responses of, I would ask him who I'm supposed to marry. Valid question. Uh, I would ask him uh, what my career path is. Valid question. I would ask him uh, about my purpose in life. Why is there evil in the world? I would ask him, how can someone know that they are saved? Now that is a good question for Jesus. And then I pose this question. Because the answer to that question, friends, shows you what you really hope in. I had one guy one time, he said, I would ask him how to get bigger muscles. (laughs) I said, that's not a great hope. That's going to fail soon enough. You'll see. Gravity will set in and uh, you'll be done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I ask this question. If Jesus Christ could speak to you for an afternoon, what would he want to talk to you about? You ever ask yourself that question? If the Lord could talk to me, what what would he want to say to me? The writer of Hebrews knows that the church there is facing major uh, trials, major tribulation, uh, major persecution, and they're going back on their hope. They're losing hope. They're retreating back to their religious activity. They're they're trusting in their functional saviors, and it's not a good hope. And so he's saying, hold on to your hope. Hold fast to your hope in what Jesus Christ has done. He's exhorting them, hold on and hold fast. Three things that Jesus Christ does that no one else can do in his high priestly role. This is why it's Christ alone. These three things. The first thing is this. Only Christ alone can get you to God. You can write out beside it, representing. Only Christ alone can get you to God. Look with me in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That word confession, literally in Hebrews 10, 23, he says, let us hold fast our, fast our confession of hope. Not wavering because we know the Lord is faithful to his promises. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Our hope is in the work that Jesus Christ has done. I love uh, the way that one writer puts it. He says this. Listen to this here. He says, uh, he captures the significance of this. The cross was the, 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 the decisive and atoning um, conflict. Uh, the cross was the decisive and atoning conflict that brought reser- uh, that brought. Um, reconciliation for us and God. The resurrection was the proclamation of triumph. The ascension was the conqueror's return with the captives of war which issued in the enthronement of the victorious king. Hear this, friends. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Jesus Christ went to the cross to take away the penalty of our sin. He conquered the the conflict with our sin and its tyranny in our lives when he raised from the third day. As John 8 says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. But just like the great high priest, and just to re- this, this, let's re- um, reference this real quick. In Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest would do this. The high priest would uh, prepare himself, put on his holy garments, he would purify himself. And on those holy garments, he would have the 12 tribes of Israel 
represented in his clothing. And as he represented the 12 tribes of Israel, he would go into the holy place and he would prepare a sacrifice. And then he would go behind this curtain into the holies of holies. And that's where the high priest would go. And only the high priest could go there one time a year to represent the people. It was bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, the high priest going on our behalf, uh, of the people of Israel at that time. And he would bring a sacrifice. And then he would intercede on, uh, on behalf of that, sac- that sacrifice is made. Then he would intercede on behalf of Israel saying, Lord, accept the sacrifice. Uh, and then he would ask that God would protect and would perfect the people of Israel, that he would make the people of Israel like God. That's what the high priest would do. Here we have Jesus Christ has ascended into the heavens. He's passed through the clouds. You see, he did not just have the triumphant entry of, of being birthed of a virgin. His disciples saw him raised from the dead. His disciples watched him in a dramatic form in Acts chapter 1, rise. And as he was rising, leave blessing over his people, leaving forgiveness, leaving uh, honor, leaving his glory with his people. And he was passing into the heavens. And as he was going to pass into the heavens, what does Jesus Christ do uh, when he goes to the heavens? Think about this, friends. When Jesus raises from the dead, he keeps his humanity and he takes his humanity into the heavens. You see, he takes his humanity into the heavens to say that he's going to represent me and you there. All, anybody that would put their faith in Jesus Christ would be represented to the Father in heaven. And his sacrifice that was sufficient would be brought into the heavens and be reminded of. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, that he made a sacrifice once and for all, friends, for me and for you. See, he was the only sacrifice that was completely sufficient, for he was a human being without sin, and yet he was God in the flesh. flesh. So he was eternal. He would be an eternal high priest. What makes Jesus the great high priest? He is your eternal representative. No one else will do. Only this perfect life, this eternal life, God in the flesh representing you will do. All other sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament, friends, all other things that the Hebrews would have found hope in are insufficient. They were nothing more than shadows to what was going to come in substance. And as its fullness comes before the throne of God, God says forgiveness can be offered to all sin. God says there's now no condemnation for those that would believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus does something really amazing in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Look at it with me here in Hebrews 1, verse 3. I want you to see this. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Watch this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at what Jesus did. He sat down. 
Why did he sit down? Because he had completed a work. When he's representing me and he's representing you, the work is complete, friends, for me and for you. And as I read in that quote, as I stumbled through my quote a couple minutes ago, the ascension does this. It, it shows a conqueror that is returning to his throne with the captives of war. And he's saying, I have retrieved the captives of war, and now I'm sitting on my throne. And make note of this, friends, it is a throne of grace. This king, our great high priest, has come, and he represents me, and he represents you. This was the very thing that gives us great assurance. Because Jesus Christ went away, he promised that he was going to prepare a place for us. John chapter 14. Because he went away and because he rose from the dead, because he lives, we will live also. For he is the firstborn, uh, he's the firstborn and first raised from the dead, as Colossians chapter 1 says. Because Jesus ascended into the heavens, that means he has prepared a way for you to get back to God. Only, this is your first point there, only Christ alone can get you to God. He is representing you. Only Christ alone can get you to God. No one else will do. This is what confounded Martin Luther in the days of the Reformation. He tried to fast. He tried uh, um, to pray. He tried pilgrimages. He tried everything, and and nothing would let his conscience go. He had to find something outside of himself. And as he watched the cheap penance that was being offered uh, uh, by the indulgences and by the relics that were being uh, worshipped in that day, Luther discovered something among the priests. When they were paid, Luther would see the priest say over the, the person that was paying an indulgence, uh, Luther would, uh, would see the priest say, okay, you're forgiven. He discovered that forgiveness was actually outside of himself in that process. And as he began to wrestle with that, he could not figure out, how could this be outside of us? And he hated God. He wrestled with God because he knew that God was a holy God. How can I truly have assurance? How can I truly have forgiveness? Only in Christ alone, representing you before the Father. Now, lest you think this was just for the Reformation. Just a couple of days ago, April 18, a little boy approached a microphone with young parishioners around. And the Pope sat in front of him, and the little boy tried to ask a question. And this is a heart-wrenching clip. The little boy can't get the question out, and so one person walks him up to the Pope, and he whispers some things in the Pope's ear. And the Pope consoles the little boy. The Pope sends the little boy back to his seat, and he says to the little boy, uh, he asks the little boy, can I, can I repeat your question to me? The little boy said this, my dad was a non-believer. Uh, my dad was a non-believer who had a good heart. He baptized all four of us little boys. Is my dad in heaven? Now, that is a very real question that's being asked today. How can we have assurance in heaven? Here's what he was told. Here's what happened. He was told this, only God knows who's truly in heaven. Fair enough. But then he repeats, then he goes on to say this. Uh, God could see that your dad had a good heart for he baptized you other little boys. Then he asked the other young parishioners, 
Could God's heart be far off from a man like that, a man who would baptize his little boys? Say it with courage, young parishioners. They say, no. He says, uh, does God forsake his children? No. You have your answer, young man. At best, at best, what he is saying to this little boy is your dad did something really wonderful and he was elusive with the statements and, he, and he, your dad may be in purgatory in the Pope's mind. At best, at worst, what he just did, and this is at worst, he just botched the gospel. You cannot get to heaven through baptism, through communion, through your righteous acts. You cannot get to heaven by your tears. You cannot get to heaven with wishful thinking. You cannot clean your life up and just be a good person. That's not going to get you to heaven. The only thing that will get you to heaven, friends, is Jesus Christ and his blood, sacrificed on a cross for you, risen on the third day, ascended into heaven, seated on the throne, and he says, come. If you know you can't get there, would you come to Jesus this morning? If you're tired of your religious activities, if you are plagued with the uncertainty of salvation, go to Jesus this morning. For he says he will wash you and make you white as snow. Only Jesus can get you to God. He is representing you, all of you that are believers. Number two, only Christ alone can keep you in God, interceding. He's interceding. Look with me at verse 15 of, our, of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a sympathetic high priest. What does it mean for someone to be sympathetic? It simply means this. is the ability to enter into the experiences of another as if they were one's own. And sympathy is the deepest when one has suffered the same experience. Hebrews 2.7 says, Jesus was made like us in every respect. He was tempted in every way. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. You may be hearing that and thinking, how can Jesus possibly sympathize with my weaknesses? For he doesn't have any weaknesses. He doesn't have any sin. But... C.S. Lewis does a great job helping us in this. Uh, he writes this, the folly of that assumption. How can Jesus sympathize with my weaknesses? No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it not by giving in. A man who gives in to the temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it, what it would be like uh, an hour from now. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows in full what temptation really means. Jesus was tempted in full, friends. And in full temptation, he was without sin. Now, why is that important in keeping you 
in God. Because he learned obedience through tears. He learned obedience through supplication. He learned obedience by praying to the Father. And he knows how to pray for you. So when you pray for you, he hears your prayers. And what is of God? He, he prays for you. He intercedes. He prays for you what you know needs to be prayed for you. But he also prays for you what you don't know needs to be prayed for you. Think about Luke 22 with Peter. When Peter is uh, saying to Jesus, I will go and I will die with you, Jesus. I will die with you. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the, before the rooster crows. But Peter, uh, as Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, I have what? I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you've turned, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Now, lest you think I'm, I'm, I'm stretching this a little bit, let me, let me just do it like this. Acts chapter 7, verses 55. Now remember, in, in Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is sitting down on the throne. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen is there. He's preaching the gospel. He's about to, he's being stoned. He looks up into the heavens. And he sees Jesus standing. Did you hear it? Standing at the right hand of God. What is he standing for? That was a common place or a common way that someone would pray and would intercede. We saw this, I think it was Eric who, who showed us Luke 18 uh, with the two men uh, uh, praying. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament when Moses intercedes on behalf, lifting his arms on behalf of Israel as Joshua tries to take the battlefield. Jesus is standing and he is interceding on behalf of Stephen, that Stephen would stay the course, would not recant, that he would be brought into the kingdom securely. Jesus intercedes on my behalf and on your behalf. No other intercession will do. But another reason, maybe why I would, I would say that we don't trust that Christ could sympathize with us is we believe that he conquers sin by divine superpowers. <laughs> that he uses his deity to conquer sin. Jesus uses the word of God found in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 to combat the temptation of Satan. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit and is walking by the Spirit's leading. Jesus uses the same means available to me and the same means available to you to be faithful to God. And so Jesus is not just, he's not just representing you as your high priest. He's not just interceding on behalf of you as your high priest. Jesus is also the um, only Christ alone can make you like God. He is perfecting you. And so by perfecting you, he gives you the same means that he uses to perfect. So he, there is no other man. There is no other means. There is no other method that can bring you before God, keep you before God, and make you like God. So Christ's likeness, he is committed to perfecting you. Look with me as your sympathetic high priest who knows your weaknesses is constantly interceding on your behalf, 
is representing you with his holy blood before the Father, what does he offer you to do? He offers you to come, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ is perfecting us when he brings us to the throne of grace. Hear this, friends. This is the thing. This is the thing that God, uh, that makes Christ different from every other religious leader. By works, you make your way to God. There's an altar of sacrifice here. There's commitment that must be involved. Your commitment, your sacrifice, your goodness does not work in the economy of God. The only way that you can come to God is that there is a throne of grace. And by this being a throne of grace, God says, come confidently. He wants me and you to come confidently to him. Now, how does that help us hold fast in times of affliction, in times of temptation, in times of great weakness? God reminds us, of his love for us. Listen to it like this, okay? Think about it like this. The word confidence there means this. It literally means to speak freely in the midst of someone who is a superior. God does not say to you, come reluctantly. Maybe I'll say it like this. You, by, because of Christ's blood, because of Christ's intercession, You are not a desperate beggar coming to a wealthy stranger for a big ask. Did you hear that? That's what confidence means. You are not a desperate beggar coming to a wealthy stranger for a big ask. You are not a guilty criminal coming to a strict judge for a lenient sentence. Because of what Christ has done on the cross and has ascended into the heavens, because of his intercession on your behalf, because he is so committed to perfecting his work in you, Philippians 1, 6, God says you come as a son or daughter to a gracious and loving father who is committed to helping you in your most weakest time. There's confidence. He says come with confidence. Our confidence is not out of arrogance. It's not out of our goodness. It's not because we feel cleaned up. It's not because we've dressed ourselves like Adam. No, our confidence is because we understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. We understand that Jesus Christ intercedes for us. We understand that Jesus Christ wants us to be in his image. And how do we get that, friends? By mercy and grace. Mercy is God withholding what you deserve. Wrath. And giving you what you don't deserve, grace. It's unmerited favor. Mercy is new every morning. Enough mercy for this day for you, friends. No matter where you're at and where you're coming in here this morning. No matter what you've done, there's enough grace for you this morning, friends. God's favor is being lavished upon you this morning. If you are a Christian, 
And if you're not a Christian, God offers you that mercy and grace this morning. It can be yours in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, come with confidence. Your confidence is a reflection of your faith in Jesus Christ. By coming, you will be strengthened by mercy. You will be strengthened by grace. You will be met in your hour of need. Let me give you a picture of this. This is from a book by Ian Bounds on the necessity of prayer. But listen, he captures this, the high priest's heart so vividly. When we come with confidence. Old English, listen though. A dear friend of mine who was quite a lover of the hunt told me in the following story. Rising early one morning, he said, I heard the barking of a number of dogs chasing deer. Looking at a large um, uh, open field in front of me, I saw a young fawn making its way across the field and giving signs that its race was almost run. It leapt over the rails of the enclosed place and crouched within 10 feet of where I stood. A moment later, two of the hounds came over and the fawn ran in my direction and pushed its head between my legs. I lifted a little thing to my breast and swinging round and round fought off the dogs. Just then I felt that all the dogs in the West could not and would not capture that fawn, watch this, after its weakness appealed to my strength. So it is when human helplessness appeals to Almighty God. I remember well when the hounds of sin were after my heart or after my soul that at last I ran into the arms of Almighty God. It's your weakness that appeals to his strength. So how do we persevere? How do we hold on to hope? We must pray at the throne of grace. But that throne is a throne where God says, come confidently. For the work that has been there is sufficient. For the favor that is there is lavished upon you. For Jesus is praying for you there consistently interceding on your behalf with his blood. Come to the throne of grace. It is this throne that God meets us in our greatest hours of weakness. It's this throne on April 18, 1521, when Martin Luther was brought before the council at Worms, and, and he was brought there in the afternoon, and they asked Luther, are you willing to recant? Luther, are you willing to recant your writings? Are you willing to forsake your hope? Are you willing to see that we are right? We would like to see it like it was in the movies that Luther said, here I stand, boldly, confidently, right? But that's not what happened. Luther said quietly. He said something. They had to hush the crowd. Everybody be quiet. What did you say? Say it again, Martin. Can you give me 24 hours to think about it? Let me think it over. And that night, in his prayer closet, in his room, he had an in-the-garden moment, as many writers have said. That night, God strengthened Martin Luther. That night, God met Martin Luther. That night, his high priest came to him with a word of encouragement, a word of strength. And when he stood back in front of the council the following day, he stood with boldness. He stood resolute. Here I stand upon the word of God. On faith alone, Christ alone, 
by grace alone. I stand here. I'm not recanting. I cannot. My conscience won't let me. He found hope in his time of need. Let me ask you a question. Where do you find hope? What do you want to talk to Jesus about this afternoon? What does Jesus want to talk to you about this afternoon? Has your hope been displaced? Have you shifted from your Savior to yourself somewhere along the way? Are you trying to fix your life and clean it up? Are you hurting and broken? Are you grieving because you've lost a loved one recently? Do you have need? Do you need help? There's many in here who can't take another step. You're not sure how to take another step in your situation. Jesus says, whether you're in the shower, whether you're in the pew, whether you're at the market, whether you're in your car, come, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, and God will meet you with mercy and grace in your help of need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us come boldly to the throne of grace consistently so that we may find help in our time of need. Continue to implant in us a greater confidence in the hope that is found in Christ alone as we experience more of his grace and mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.